Hi, I'm Carla Nappi, and this is New Books in East Asian Studies. Welcome and thanks for joining us. I just spoke with Pat Ebry about her awesome book, Emperor Huizong. This is a book that came out in 2014, very recently, with Harvard University Press, and it's an amazing book. The things that make it amazing are a combination of just the... Hi, I'm Carla Nappi, and this is New Books in East Asian Studies. Welcome and thanks for joining us. I just spoke with Pat Ebry about her awesome book, Emperor Huizong. This is a book that came out in 2014, very recently, with Harvard University Press. And it's an amazing book. The things that make it amazing are... A combination of just the magisterial, the massive amount of research that went into creating a portrait of a human being that also was an emperor. And so one of the really impressive things about this is not just the amount, but also the very wide range of kinds of sources um, that she brought to bear in this story. And also collectively, it allows the painting of a picture of this person, not just as someone who governed, which is very beautiful described here, but also as an artist, um, as a personality, as a father, as a brother, um, as a lover, as a practitioner of the Taoist arts, as a believer, as a skeptic. This is really a person that comes out of this story and not just an emperor. And so it's it's extraordinarily um, impressive on that, just from that perspective. In addition to that, it's really a wonderful read. Um, I found myself sitting down and reading and paging through in a what comes next kind of a way and because it's just a very, very gripping story. And when, we, when you get to the end, the fourth part of the book, where everything comes crashing down, there are markets selling human meat, um, Hui Zong is faking a stroke to abdicate. I mean, it's just an amazing story. And so it's just a very, very, very well-written, very clearly written account, as well as being a really well-researched account. It's a very important book. It's a pleasure to read through, and it's also um, one of these books that if you have any interest in history of China, history of emperors, um, certainly the history of the Song Dynasty, it's an absolute must-read. So it was a pleasure, truly, truly, uh, to read through the book, um, and it was really a pleasure to talk with Pat about it. I hope you enjoy, and I hope you have a chance to read the book after. We're here today to talk with Patricia Ebrie about her new book, Emperor Huizong. Welcome to New Books in East Asian Studies, Pat, and thanks very, very much for making time to talk with me today and to talk with me on a holiday, no less. So thanks. I'm really looking forward to it. Well, thank you. So, Pat, could you start us off by saying just a little bit about yourself and your background, and specifically, how did you come to work on the history of China and the history of Song China in particular? Well, I don't really have a great story. I was an undergraduate at the University of Chicago. And if you wanted to major in the social sciences, you had to take a year-long non-Western civilization class. And I hadn't even decided whether I wanted to do humanities or social sciences. But I thought it wouldn't hurt to do Chinese civ. Um, And I took that my second year. And also saying, why not? I tried Chinese, which at the University of Chicago in those days, they said, start with classical. So this was a rather different way than most people my generation uh, have done. I just, second year, I took both and uh, got hooked and never left it after that. I'm sorry. 
I, you also asked how I got to the Sun yes. Dynasty. Yes, yes. Um, for my dissertation, I actually took um, uh, one of the aristocratic families from Han to Tom. So I wasn't yet in the Song Dynasty. Um, but when I finished that and the job market was still really bad, I said, what would I really like to work on? And I, I got interested in doing family history. And for that, I felt I had to move forward in time because there's so many more sources for the Sung than the Tom. And that was around 1979-80, I switched into Sung. Mm -hmm. So the book that we're talking about today is firmly in Song history, and it explores the person and also the reign of Emperor Huizong. Huizong, for listeners who aren't familiar um, with this figure, this history, he ascended the Song throne in 1100 at age 17, and he ruled almost 26 years until 1125. And the book winds up being, at least from the perspective of, of this reader, an exploration not just of his reign, but of him as a person, of what it means and what it can look like to do the history of an emperor as a human being, and also a really wonderful uh, account of Song history in this period. So it's an extraordinarily rich account. It's also a, quite a pleasure to read, and we'll get into the um, particular moments um, of that for me that really stand out in a little bit. Um, but it's really just, a, it's a monumental, but also really, really pleasurable book about an emperor, a dynasty, and a person. So how did you come to this particular focus and to a decision um, specifically to do a book-length uh, monograph on Huizong in particular? Well, that, that's uh, an interesting question because when I started Chinese history in the late 60s, uh, like many people, I wanted to do social history and try to get more, um, less rulers and people at the top. But uh, in the 90s, especially when I, I worked on the Cambridge Illustrated History of China, I really found myself attracted to trying to do more with visual materials. So I tried to think of what I could do in the sum, which visual uh, evidence would be important. And that's what drew me into Huizen, because he is an artist and an art collector and an art patron. Mm -hmm. So how have you come, just to, um, to kind of expand on that a little bit, how did you come to decide to work on Huizong as a person and to cover his whole reign rather than a book that looked specifically, rather than just a book that looks specifically at him as a collector and an artist and a patron, which this book does, but it also does a whole lot more than that. So this must have taken a whole lot of time. I mean, it's a, it's a magisterial book. It's an, an incredible amount of work must have gone into this. How did you come to the decision to do this on his reign in toto rather than focusing on a particular theme? aspect of that reign? Well, there probably would be just as I got into the materials, I began to see ways you could think about Waitzum that were different than the traditional ones, that his um, love of Taoism and art had led him to neglect governing, and that was the reason why the Jurchen invaded and took him captive and so on. So this was seeing ways that we could look at Huizong differently than the traditional Chinese historiography had. Mm -hmm. So the book itself 
it does take on this dominant, and you mentioned this early on in the book, it takes on this dominant view, as you've just mentioned, of Hui Zong in academic literature about the song. This is a picture of him as a ruler so caught up in kind of leisure and having a sensual life and Taoism that he failed in his governance and ultimately um, contributes to bringing down the dynasty. At some point along the way, the Jurchens are invading the Song. They capture Kaifeng, and we'll talk about this. And um, This is captured in a really moving part of the book itself. And Huizong is taken into captivity with thousands of others. So the dominant question becomes, in a lot of the literature about this, what went wrong? And the book takes a very different tack in exploring the positive aspects of Huizong's rule, his um, expressions of sovereignty and his governance that don't assume from the outset that this had to have been a failure. So it's a really interesting, very non-teleological kind of approach um, that really changes, I think, how we think about him as a figure historically, as you've just mentioned. Um, so one of the things that you mention at several points in the book that's really striking and I think very important important from the perspective of the craft um, of Chinese history is that you mentioned that writing this kind of an account demanded work with a range of different kinds of sources that perhaps hadn't typically been brought to bear in uh, most understandings or many understandings of Huizong as an emperor before. Now, since this is a really fascinating part of this project, I wonder if you could talk a little bit about that. What kinds of sources did you work with to allow you to gain this kind of perspective on Huizong's reign? Uh, yes, certainly there was a, a wide range. Or just as you mentioned, learning new things or having to use new sources. Um, I really knew nothing about the coinage of money or the control of the government supply of money. Uh, but as you work through even fairly standard sources like in the Sunghuaya, which would be mostly edicts and memorials, uh, there is, I think there was something like over 7,000 items in the Sunghuaya. And even just to understand the government side requires a lot of working through materials until you feel like you've got some control over it. Mm -hmm. But I also tried to do, for instance, to seriously consider his poetry. And again, I wasn't at all a specialist on poetry. I had to sort of work through um, this material before I felt like I'd be comfortable at trying to cite and make use of it. And then Taoism, again, is a very complex field, and I felt that I needed to have a sense of what Waitzen was writing in his writings on Taoism, because this uh, seemed to me uh, one of the better ways to get at him as a person. And one of the things that results um, is just this amazing feeling that the reader is, it gets to know him as a person and just following him through year after year after year um, to such an extent that I was telling the rest of my household um, yesterday when I was reviewing for my notes for this that I wish that we had this for every emperor. I mean, it just really completely changes your experience of what Chinese history can look like um, to be able to have this kind of account. And, and as you um, mentioned, it's, it's impossible without taking a rather different approach, a much more expansive approach to weaving together different kinds of sources than we might otherwise think of um, as relevant to this. 
So as we move, um, let's move into the book itself. The chapters of the book take us through the childhood, the ascent to the throne, the reign, the decline, and then the death of Huizong in series of groups of chapters that are organized um, in four different parts. And so part one, learning to rule, takes us into Huizong's childhood and his early reign. So the first chapter paints a really fascinating picture of what it was like for him to grow up in the palace when he was a child before he was actually on the throne. And it, it lays out the circumstances of um, what was Kaifeng like, what was the imperial city like, um, who the women in the family were. It brings us into what weddings at the um, imperial center would have been like, talks about his education, and also um, gives us an account of the kind of dramatic elements of his family life. After this, the second chapter um, really gets us into what circumstances brought him to the throne itself, and it takes us into his life upon the death of his brother. So let's actually start there. And can you talk a little bit about this? Specifically, after Huizong's brother died, what was the succession like, and what were the circumstances under which he actually came to rule? Well, I think one thing interesting about succession in some times is that the final um, kingmaker, the person who makes the final decision, is actually the senior widow, the uh, woman with the highest rank, which in his case was the empress of his father, Shanzong, um, Empress Xiang. She wasn't his mother, but she would count as his legal mother. Uh, and Huizong, uh, the, uh, it's often described as the 11th son of uh, Shanzong, but actually eight of those of his elder brothers had died. So after Jezong died, there is one brother who's a few months older than him. Uh, but Empress Xiang says that he has uh, sick eyes. Exactly what that meant is hard to say. Could have just been very nearsighted or something. Um, and she supported uh, Huizong. Other people brought up uh, another brother who was a full brother of Judson, had the same mother as Judson. Um, and uh, Empress Xiang pretty strongly says no, no she wants Huizong. I suspect the fact that he didn't have a living mother may have been part of what attracted her to him. And she also says that he was uh, very smart, which having worked on this material a long time now, I also think this true. He was a very intelligent person. And the circumstances under which he comes to rule are circumstances where he's dealing with the interplay between reformers and anti-reformers. And the third chapter actually takes us into the process where he's trying to rule with um, what you call a coalition government during his second and third years on the throne. So can you talk about that circumstance? Because that actually winds up, I think, um, becoming an important part of this early period of rule for him that sets the stage for what comes later. What's going on here with this coalition government? And what do we need to understand about this to understand um, something important about this early part of his rule? Mm -hmm. Here, I think Wei Zong, like perhaps other people, thought that somehow this two groups of officials should find ways to work together. There must be some level of compromise. And here we're talking about the factions which were already in place during his father's reign, the new policies of Wang Anshur, Wang Anshur has been long dead, but these two factions have continued. Uh, and Huizong picks 
um, someone who can, he thinks, deal with both sides. Um, and it doesn't work very well. It tries for a year to get people. He would issue orders saying things like, stop attacking each other in your memorials. But it didn't seem to have much effect. Uh, and finally, after a, a pretty long try, he is convinced that he needs to pick sides. And he ends up picking the reformers. And in particular, at that time, uh, Tsai Jing is the leading person who he then makes a grand counselor. So chapter four actually takes us into this choice, um, his choice of the reformers, and introduces Tsai Jing, and it talks um, specifically about the circumstances under which Huizong appointed Tsai Jing as grand counselor, and considers what followed, and especially um, a series of very rather autocratic policies that you describe here being put in place to expand the power of Huizong and of his agents, including Tsai Jing. So can you talk a little bit about Tsai Jing for us? Because he recurs um, throughout the book and will um, rear his head will come up again in later chapters as a, a figure who continues to be um, really important, at least seemingly from the perspective of a reader, to Huizong's continuing rule. Who's Tsai Jing and what do we need to know about him to understand his importance in this early stage of Huizong's reign? Well, Tsai Jing um, had first served under Shenzong, not in a really high position, but he stayed loyal to the reformist cause and was serving in high office during Zhezong's reign as well, relatively high office. His brother uh, was higher up. Uh, in my sense of, of Tsai Jing as a person, certainly one of his talents was an ability to uh, see a um, situation politically, understand how to uh, institutionalize a practice. Uh, he also clearly wrote very well, um, was considered a, a good calligrapher. Uh, Wei Zung at one point you know, praises him for how quickly he could deal with all problems and write an edict, uh, things of this sort. He's a generation older than Wei Zung, which of course would be true. When you come to the throne at 17, the senior officials are going to be more your father's generation. And I have a sense that he did see things in Wei Zung um, and a, a bit, I think, acting as a kind of uh, uncle, surrogate father kind of thing that Hui Tsung, you know, didn't really grow up with a father. He was only two, uh, less than three when his father died. Uh, I have the feeling that he often did seek Tsai Jing's approval, particularly on things like his art activities. And his art activities actually wind up being um, a really fantastically interesting part of the next part of the book. So that really nicely, I think, brings us into part two. Um, I'll just mention for listeners who are particularly interested in histories of governance, chapter four, before we move on, also um, looks in detail at the kinds of policies that did create this vision of a sort of more autocratic government, including blacklists, um, including the expansion of the government school system to, as a way to increase ideological conformity, and including um, the issuing of edicts in the emperor's own hand as a way to circumvent kind of going through um, a more complicated 
complicated bureaucratic system in order to get what he wanted um, in place. And so it's a really interesting chapter for, from those uh, perspectives as well. So the chapters in part two of the book shift our focus to Hui Zong's cultural activities, and they look in turn at religion, ritual, art, music, and architecture. And it's really a, a fantastically interesting set of chapters. The fifth chapter, and which is the first chapter in this part, this looks closely at Huizong's early relationship with Taoism. And this is a theme that runs through the entire book and is going to come up um, later on as well. So this chapter is really interesting because it attempts to understand these early years of Huizong's patronage and belief in, um, in Taoism on their own terms without reading them in light of his later engagement with Taoists. So let's talk a little bit about this and specifically about your approach to treating um, this early stage of Taoism in this way. How specifically does taking this kind of very explicitly non-teleological approach change how we understand Hui Zong's relationship with Taoism in these years uh, for you? Mm -hmm. Well, to me, that was very important. You know, just like we don't want to keep in mind that the church or to uh, take Kaifeng, you don't also want to think that the kind of uh, much more exceptional Taoism that he becomes involved with after 1116, you don't want that to color what you see in the earlier period. So I did try very much to read the evidence for the earlier period without knowing that he's going to go a little far later on. So what is the evidence um, that you looked at for his engagement with Taoism in this early period? And how would you characterize for listeners who haven't um, yet had a chance to read the book, his, his relationship with Taoism in this early period of his reign? Well, certainly there, the most exciting evidence to me anyway, is this set of around 50 letters that he wrote to Liu Hongkong, who was then the sort of patriarch of Maoshan Taoism. Uh, and these are you do, again, see this sort of difference of generation. The man is in his 60s. Uh, the letters we have are between 1102 and 1105. Uh, is making all sorts of queries to him. Uh, he's also writing in a friendly way, on the way letters would be written at a time, you know, encouraging him to take care of his health and stuff like that. Um, but there are several interests that come through. Huizong, uh, for instance, copies scriptures to send to him as gifts. He asks him about um, anomalies, uh, portents, wants to, in a sense, get a Taoist reading on these things, which, of course, also have a Confucian uh, issue. But, but the Confucian approach rarely talks about how you could change faith. So Taoism is offering you something else uh, on this issue of anomalies. shows he has uh, quite an interest in talismans, um, at, repeatedly asked Leo Hong Kong to send talismans that could be used for curing uh, often ones they might be a particular disease or a kind of worry uh, or the hundred ailments uh, he also says that he's giving these to other people in the palace who become sick so here we get uh, a view of a we can see the kind of scriptures he's reading um, some of his practices, some of his uh, generosity. He's repeatedly sent, sending things to Leo Hong Kong. Unfortunately, Leo Hong Kong dies in 1108, so we don't have this the whole way through. Um, but besides these letters, there are other things, especially 
preserved in the history of Mashon of um, things that were uh, inscribed on stone, various um, essays, uh, particularly funerary inscriptions, so that we do get um, a much more varied view. Uh, And one that seems relatively conventional that many literati who are interested in Taoism probably did much the same sorts of things. One of the really interesting things uh, related to the issue of talismans that you just brought up that comes out in this chapter, kind of toward the end of the chapter, but then what we're going to see again as we move through the chapters is that one of the things you're arguing here is Taoism attracted him in part, um, not totally, but in part, um, based on its visual power, perhaps. And so we have already this interest in and this draw um, to visuality and the power of visuality that's going to recur throughout some of the other chapters. Yeah, I guess I could, I could interrupt there. And sure. That uh, one thing that's interesting there is that Huizong actually paints Taoist icons, uh, portraits of divinities that he gives to Leo Hong Kong. So you can sort of see him bringing the art and Taoism together at that point. So as we move forward um, into the later chapters in this part of the book, we see more and more the development of um, these uh, the set of arguments and descriptions of Hui Zong's interest in the arts and the crafts um, in these different areas thereof. So chapter six looks at Hui Zong's involvement in the reform of court music, and speaking of anomalies importance uh, that you were just talking of, also the celebration of auspicious omens. And it asks, in part, what kinds of knowledge of the past did members of his court draw on in their efforts to enliven court culture? So this chapter looks at three cases that each reveal something interesting about Hui Zong's embrace of tradition at the court. So in addition to uh, calling for musical reform in 1102, and this is related to the discovery of a set of six ancient bells in a tomb at this period, you also talk about the casting of the nine cauldrons. Um, So there's a really interesting, um, very focused attention to material culture, um, as well as musical culture in this chapter that's really interesting. It also, though, this chapter um, talks about a case of his embracing of the celebration of auspicious signs. And I wanted to ask you very briefly about this, because it does relate to the kind of argument that we saw in the previous chapter about Taoism. So in contrast to the way Hui Zong was depicted in relation to Taoism, this chapter presents him as somewhat less than a full believer in these omens as signs from heaven. So this is a a chapter that um, really kind of complicates our view of Hui Zong as, uh, in terms of belief and the relationship of belief to his practices. So can you talk about that a little bit? How does his attitude toward um, omens and auspicious signs in this part of the book complicate um, how we understand his relationship to, for example, the Taoist material early on? Mm-hmm. You hear this, of course, is an interpretation. It's not something that I can prove. Mm-hmm. I did try to uh, learn the vocabulary people used in talking about these things. And one thing I saw right away was that in earlier reigns, including when he was a teenager and his brother is on the throne, people used very much the same kinds of language, the same kinds of images. Um, and it, it definitely can go over the top uh, in what those who are writing memorials to congratulate the ruler on auspicious signs. Uh, 
So I had struggled a bit how to think about that. And I came to an interpretation that I think I find uh, feels right to me, that a lot of this is a kind of um, making court lively and pleasant. That is kind of pleasantry that it uh, would probably be understood by all people around that um, you're putting the positive spin on anything. So, for instance, uh, eclipses of the sun had traditionally been seen as uh, a sign that something isn't going right in the palace. But... uh, During this period, people often started congratulating the ruler if an eclipse was not as total as had been predicted. So even something like an eclipse, you can sort of turn it around to make it something to celebrate. So we do get a lot of uh, celebration going on. You get a lot of officials who are joining in with this and reporting positive odds. Great. Thank you. So let's move um, to chapter seven. We move to a chapter that looks closely at the artists and other kinds of experts that Hui Zong employed at his court. And it focuses on the fields that you have um, evidence to show Hui Zong had a strong personal interest in. And so those fields include medicine, architecture, and painting. So there's a really interesting discussion of his patronage of medicine and medical texts. Um, There's a really also very, very interesting discussion of the composition in this period of Ligia's building standards, which winds up becoming a really, really important architectural manual. But what I want to ask you about, just in the interests um, of time, but listeners, though, um, as an oral footnote, should know that there's um, a lot of... here, if you're interested in the history of medicine or the history of architecture as well, even though I won't ask you specifically about those, but feel free to talk about them if you'd like. Okay, end of oral footnote, um, back to the main event. So Huizong had a pretty close relationship with court painters. He had studied painting and began to collect paintings before he ascended the throne. So this is something he's very interested in. And the chapter looks at five paintings that, that you argue have the best claim to having been produced at Huizong's court. And this includes a figure painting, two different bird and flower paintings, and two landscapes. And many of these are quite beautifully rendered in color plates in the book. So let's talk about that a little bit. Um, can you tell us a little bit about what was Huizong's relationship with court painters in this period? And how do we, what do we learn more generally about his relationships with experts at court by looking at um, his relationship with painters and by looking at the paintings in particular? Mm-hmm. Here, I think we do have to use a lot of anecdotal information that Huizong's uh, relationship with painters does get mentioned in um, several books that you might call art criticism, notes about art, things of this sort. So he has a reputation for paying very close attention to the work of court artists and insisting on every detail being correct. So this will be a very kind of realistic, descriptive type of painting that he's accredited with promoting at court. But at the same time, he's known for insisting that uh, painters be able to paint in a poetic way, 
that if he gives a couplet, they can paint a scene which will be connected. So you're kind of poetic painting, not just painting something that's mentioned in a poem, but sort of capturing much more the elusiveness of poetry, of hinting at things, not just describing them straightforwardly. So we do have this kind. This has been well known. It's repeated in uh, any art historical account which mentions Waitson. But then there's the paintings themselves, a fair number of which survive. And um, one thing that I found worth struggling over was the question of whether or not the paintings produced by the court painters at his court are conveying political messages. And I start with some that very clearly convey political messages. They've got it inscribed right there. We have inscriptions on them, and they tell us something about them. So we've got uh, several, well, three paintings that survive from a large set that are um, depicting auspicious events. So that very obviously has a political side. Uh, Almost all... Figure paintings in this period tend to be connected to immoral stories, and so figure paintings also are very easy to interpret as uh, carrying a political message. But then I also consider bird and flower painting and landscape painting, um, which don't necessarily have inscriptions. Sometimes people have tried to give them political readings. I argue that we should also consider the possibility that if Waitzen liked poetic paintings, he would like paintings as adverse in their subject matter as uh, poetry. Um, Also, since he was a big collector and he didn't collect only paintings that had positive political messages about his court, I think it's quite possible he'd like people, his court artists, to produce paintings that um, are of the type which were popular in his day, that collectors collected. So one of the most interesting examples here is a terrific, but very large, long landscape hand scroll in the Palace Museum in Beijing, which has a small inscription, only six or seven lines, I think, by Tsai Jin, reporting uh, that it was painted by an 18-year-old painter, Wang Ximeng, who the year before Wei Zong had given personal instruction to, uh, that he'd seen his talent and tried to train him. And then Tai Ying tells us that this is a result, which is uh, an absolutely gorgeous, huge painting. Um, and I don't personally see any real political message in it other than... Um, um, Everything's going fine. Something very vague like that, perhaps. So as we move from this to um, the next chapter in the book, we learn that, um, or and we get a very a detailed, um, quite wonderful accounting of the fact that Hui Zong was not just patronizing um, court painters. As you mentioned, he's not just, um, he, I mean, he's also helping to teach painters, but he's also painting and writing poetry and um, accomplishing sort of these beautiful calligraphic pieces as well. So chapter eight looks at Hui Zong's personal practice of the arts and also his presentation of his 
himself as an artist. And it looks in turn at his slender gold calligraphy, his painting, um, and, and sort of notes that he's especially notable for his combination of painting and poetry in, the, in a single work. And it also looks at his poetry. So in your reading of these sources, what kind of self-presentation is he aiming for? What is, through his um, artistic work, broadly conceived in these ways, poetry, painting, calligraphy, what does Wei Zong want others to understand about him as an artist? Mm -hmm. I do think he is trying to show himself as um, talented and cultivated. Certainly his calligraphy was very distinctive for his day, but it's a style that you don't just, it's not slapdash. He had to have worked for a long time perfecting uh, this style, which is certainly very elegant and shows uh, personal control. Um, I also thought it was important to consider Wei Zong as a poet, that there's really quite a bit of poetry that survives, and um, also evidence of him um, writing poetry with other people at his court. A lot was written with Tsai Jing. We have several long exchanges that survive, and presumably a great deal which hasn't survived. So that he is um, making claims in the sort of three arts of poetry, painting, and calligraphy, which have been a kind of ideal since Tom Kimes, but not that many people actually uh, um, could um, do superior work in all three. So you've got some uh, extraordinarily uh, talented people of the prior generation, like Su Shi, who's a great calligrapher and a great poet, but not much of a painter. Um, uh, Li Gong Lin, who is uh, somewhat older than Wei Zong, not, I don't think he's old as Su Shi, uh, did terrific painting as well as um, poetry, isn't as much of a calligrapher, but a big collector, things of this sort that I think Wei Zhong is responding to some of the trends in these arts in the late 11th century, which is an incredibly important period in the development, particularly of painting. Um, but he's more or less saying, of course, always actually speaking very modestly, but I think by putting his things out there and showing them to people in court, he is making a kind of statement that oh, I can do this too, and I can do it very well. Thank you so much. Now, as we move to the third part of the book, Anticipating Great Things, um, we sort of see his patronage of uh, the monumental projects. We see him working with counselors, and we see the development of a story that's going to come to a head in the fourth part of the book. But before we get there, let's look at his um, chapter nine, Pursuing the Monumental. Now, this chapter looks at six massive projects that Hui Zong undertook that all you're arguing here reflect his ambition and they're all monumental in intent, and this monumental aspect of them becomes really important. So these six projects include a new ritual code, a new Taoist canon, a book of visual documentation of auspicious signs, a really fascinating book um, called Antiquities Illustrated. Again, material culture and Hui Zong as a collector becomes a really interesting part of his story. The Bright Hall, and then a new royal park known as the Northeast Marchmount. So there are a lot of different kinds of projects um, that are included here that are all really, really interesting. 
one of the arguments that you're making in this part of the book really ties it together with what's come before and with what will come after by arguing that his interest in Taoism actually really interestingly found an expression in his patronage of these six major projects. So could you talk a little bit about that? How did his interest in Taoism find expression here? Mm-hmm. You know, this is... Uh... A case where, you know, in earlier versions of this manuscript, most of these things had a whole chapter, but I was getting really out of <laughs> control of the amount of material. And so as I thought of, you know, how I can sort of um, make the effort more concise, I started thinking, well, which of these things could I group together and on what basis? And it was at that point that I sort of started seeing that there are, were these real efforts to do something beyond what had been done by any of the earlier Song emperors, to carry things further, to do things in a way which would really stand out. And as I got to thinking about these different things, then I started to notice how Taoism is definitely in there in all of them. With the ritual code, is basically a Confucian ritual code uh, of the tradition of the Kayanli, but uh, Huizong brings Taoist clergy in at uh, at key points. They're still not by any means dominating this ritual, but there's they're part of it. Announcements are sent to principal Taoist monasteries that there is going to be a sacrifice to heaven or things of this sort. Um, Clicking the Taoist canon certainly uh, fits there. I do bring up the ways that the collection of antiquities um, can be connected to Taoism. Um, the Bright Hole, again, is totally Confucian in its basic uh, genealogy, but ways and finds ways to make it a bit more Taoist. There, particularly interesting to me, was an edict that he issued saying that the um, the high god there basically is the same as the jade emperor. So you're saying, you're kind of trying to bring together the ancient side of Confucianism with Taoism. Uh, so, that, you know, within Taoism, of course, you can have things being uh, different. Um, gods don't have to all be one way. They can, they can change and so on. So that there wouldn't be anything um, negative from a Taoist point of view of saying that the Jade Emperor is the same as a highest heaven. The the Gunyuet, the Northeast March Mount, you can see things like um, there is the idea of a kind of uh, paradise of microcosm of the macrocosm. And then the names of many of the pavilions have a Taoist sides to them. Uh, and some of the writing that Huizong did about the uh, Ganyue, the, the Northeast March Mount, you can see a Taoist ideas coming through on them. So I think that Taoism is part of the inspiration for carrying all of these projects so far, initiating so many different, very ambitious projects. Thank you. So there are two chapters after this that look in detail in turn at the pleasures of palace life. And so chapter 10, 
goes into poetry at the palace, banquets and parties at the palace, some of which involved Huizong very proudly making tea for his guests by himself. And also it talks about um, the importance of the time he spent with women and with his children. He liked the ladies. Um, he was a, f- a fan of the ladies. He also had 65 children during his time on the throne. So he was, he was known for that. After this, chapter 11 looks closely at how Huizong worked with his counselors to govern the country. And it looks specifically at uh, Tsai Jing, this figure who came up a little bit earlier, and the Council of State and talks in turn about currency, policymaking, and gives special attention to eunuchs as well. So after these two chapters, we come back to a theme that we just talked about, which is the importance of Taoism. And here we find kind of a transformation in what's going on. And this is the part of the story that when we talked a little bit earlier on about how you were not assuming a kind of teleological approach when talking about Taoism in his early life, this is um, part of what we would be assuming um, if we had been taking that teleological approach into account. And so this is chapter 12, Accepting Divine Revelations. During his second decade on the throne, Huizong pursued his interests in Taoist scriptures, um, Taoist masters, Taoist ideas, and this chapter looks really closely at them. It talks about his attitudes toward dreams and visions. It talks about um, his relationship to Lin Ling Su, a Taoist master who drew him deeply into new currents of the religion, and it talks about his state support um, of Taoism as well. So can you um, sort of talk a little bit about what's changing here? What is um, transforming um, in terms of Huizong's attitude toward support of Taoism in this part of the story compared with what we saw earlier on in the story? Mm-hmm. Well, I do think these uh, early visions or dreams are important in sort of uh, getting Huizong more receptive to the idea that uh, great things are possible. Um, and then Lin Ling Su appears. So this, he is difficult to fully you know, take a historical objective reading of. Was he manipulating Wei Zong? Was Wei Zong um, just waiting for somebody to come along and make these kinds of predictions? But what he's known for most is uh, stating that uh, Hui Tsung is a descendant of the high gods via um, or complicating an earlier case already in Zheng's reign there was an idea that the ancestor of the uh, Zhao family, the, the Sun royal family was a descendant of the high Taoist gods but here we have Wei Zong as an incarnation of a son of the emperor, the Jade Emperor. Uh, and this is not just treated as a minor thing. It becomes established as a part of uh, state-sponsored Taoist temples and rituals. So this is going uh, quite far, really. Um, the Divine Empyrean, this strand of Taoism, which is certainly connected to Lin Ling Su. He says he learned it from his teacher. How much is basically his creation? Again, it's hard to say because nothing survives from the teacher. Mm-hmm. Um, the 
Waiting does all sorts of things at once. And one earlier draft, I had a kind of list of all the dates of all these initiatives that took place between 1117 and 1119. He does one thing after the other. He's setting up temples. He's uh, issuing his own uh, commentaries to the Zhuangzi, the Liaozi, and the Liaozi. Uh, he's creating a Taoist examination system and um, bring, uh, saying that you could uh, go through the regular examination system and just choose to do Taoist uh, classics, mm-hmm. um, supporting very large numbers of Taoists. And one of the things that really bothered Confucian observers is treating Linling Su as a teacher and um, being deferential to him so that the son of heaven shouldn't be really deferential to anyone. But he is treating Lin Ming Su as uh, somebody who, within the Taoist system, ranks above him. Chapter 13, after we've um, gotten to this in detail, looks closely at what's characterized as the worst decision Hui Zong ever made, right? To ally with the Jurchen Jin dynasty against the Song's immediate neighbor to the north, the Kitan state of Liao. Now, one issue that comes up here and um, that's going to recur um, in a little while was that Hui Zong and his counselors didn't have much information to go on. And so the kind of information economy of this period of the song winds up playing a really interesting role. And it's, it's a, I think, a really fascinating part of this story. Now, once this happens, this really sets off the decline and fall. And it sets off part four of the story, which is a completely fascinating narrative of what happens that the circumstances in which Wei Zong falls from the throne um, and ultimately what happens afterwards. It's, a compl- it's a, not only a really fascinating, but also a really moving part of the story. Um, so let's turn to this. Chapter 14 um, kind of sets the stage, and I'll just super quickly go through that. There's an uprising, Fang La's uprising. Um, this, uh, what's happening is a rebel forms an army in one of the richest parts of the country and had captured several cities, including Hangzhou, right? Song armies are busy quelling this uprising in the southeast, and at the same time, Jurchen armies are taking territory and destroying the Liao. Now, there's this awesome widow um, of Ye Lu Chun who takes over the Yan forces at this point. So there's a really kind of badass widow here um, that's a really interesting part of the story. Long story short, there's a treaty of 1123, but it's largely dictated by the Jurchens. This all gets really, really expensive. And by chapter 15, the Jurchens have invaded. Okay, um, so this is an extraordinarily powerful part of the book. Um, the narrative takes us through play by play, not just what happened, but also what life in the capital during this invasion of the Jurchens would have been like, not just for Hui Zong, um, but for people, other people who were living through this. So Hui Zong's decision to abdicate is one of the many, many exceptionally moving parts of this section of the book, um, and it's what I'd like to ask you about now. So can you talk a little bit about that? What are the circumstances of Hui Zong's abdication, and um, can you kind of situate us in this part of the story? Mm-hmm. Okay. Um, one interesting thing here is that we have some quite detailed accounts of the conversations going back and forth. Uh, after the word of the Jurchen invasion reaches the capital. Wei Zong 
uh, considers a variety of alternatives. Uh, some people bring up the idea of uh, moving to Luoyang or Chang'an. Here, of course, they've got um, the case of the Anmushan Rebellion in mind, that the Tang imperial family does exit the capital and uh, is able to eventually return and put themselves back in the capital. But mm, some years go by. Other people are arguing that it's very important to stay in the capital and to defend it, but that it might well be better if Waitzum abdicates. Abdicating here was considered, I think, a kind of confession of faults, so that to the extent that the Jin claimed that they were aggrieved over some actually probably pretext, minor issues. But this would be a way for someone to say, okay, we admit we are wrong, but we've made the right changes. We've got a new emperor on the throne. Let's start again. Uh, that was certainly very much part of the thinking of the people involved. Uh, Wei Zong clearly talks to quite a few people, but he makes up his mind uh, within a day or two and does go ahead. He thinks about the issue of whether or not he should claim illness. The official he's talking to says that that's not necessary, but he uh, is not comfortable with that answer. And so he basically um, fakes a stroke. He falls over and then he can't use his um, half of his body. I think actually his right hand and his right leg, he tries to fake. So he has to try to write in his left hand. Um, I think this is not terribly plausible for a real stroke. And since we have all this literature showing him talking about, should I claim illness? Uh, you can see that that is what he's done. Um, interestingly, as soon as his eldest son, who'd been crown prince for a decade already, so there was no question about succession, he was the first son, first son of the emperors, uh, truly does resist being put on the throne. But once he is actually on the throne, very much like when Huizen was actually on the throne after Justin died, then everything switches. So you do sort of see a side of how the imperial system works. If you've got the robes and you're seated on the throne, then all the eunuchs around, all the officials um, are, are obeying the person who now is the emperor. And so as an ex-emperor, Wei Zong's uh, influence goes down very, very rapidly. So he's just faked a stroke. He's abdicated. Um, Qin Zong, his son, reluctantly takes over. Hui Zong and his entourage head south. The Jurchens invade and just kind of strengthen their presence in Kaifeng and demand exorbitant sums of gold and silver, of women, and are just complete jerks. And so there's a really um, kind of disturbing set of descriptions of what the Jurchens are doing in the city um, that is I quite, I was sitting reading this and my husband walked in and was like, what's going on? Because apparently my the look of horror on my face while I was reading this, my mouth was open. It's a really gripping part of the book um, and it really gives um, a, a much more personal and human sense to what actually was involved on the ground when a transition like this happened that I, I had experienced in any other um, book about this or about other kinds of dynastic mm -hmm. transitions. So it's a really moving part of the book. Okay, so as of chapter 16, uh, things just deteriorate. Um, markets are selling human flesh. People are dying left and right. Hui Zong and Qin Zong leave. 
Now, what's the relationship like at this point between Huizong and his son? Because this is this relationship between father and son and between current emperor and um, just recent emperor winds up being a really fascinating part of this narrative. So can you talk about that a little bit as we move to the end? Mm-hmm. So during the basically uh, one year of Qingzong's reign, between the first Jurchen invasion and the second Jurchen invasion, First, Huizong and an entourage of maybe a few dozen people uh, go south. Um, almost immediately after the Jurchen uh, leave with their first ransom, Qingzong's officials start demanding that people who had served Huizong be punished and also demanding that uh, Huizong come back so there'd be no ambiguity about who is ruling. This persists for a few months. Um, so, Huizong um, is leaving at the very beginning of the year 1126, and it's in the fourth month of that year that he comes back. He's uh, basically uh, lives in what had been his princely mansion and then converted to a Taoist temple. He sort of um, presents himself more as a Taoist at this period, but the relationship between his small court and uh, Chen Zong's main court becomes very strained. Um, he's only invited to the palace uh, once, and on his birthday, he and uh, Chen Zong uh, have a very strained relationship, and after that, there's some no contact between them. But the second church invasion uh, occurs in the latter part of that year, 10th, 11th month, um, this time, the, they fight, and the Jurchen, after a month of fighting, have contained, uh, gained control of the city walls. And actually, much of the plundering occurs after that, after the second one. Um, they, again, have to collect huge amounts of gold and silver, and that's much harder to do because almost everything avail- easily available had been taken the year before, plus all these things like women and um, winemakers and artisans of various sorts and so on. Uh, so in thinking of the relationship of, of Huizong and Chinzong, uh, it becomes it reaches a different stage. Chinzong voluntarily uh, lets himself be taken to the church's camp outside the city walls, uh, saying that he can't give his father his hostage and so on. But eventually, Huizong um, is compelled to leave the palace. And um, after a few months on the road, Chinzong and Huizong are together much more. Uh, of the time. So you've had these uh, different stages. They're going to end up being uh, together for uh, six, seven years anyway, something like that. So at the end of the book, um, in the final chapter before the afterword, we see um, Huizong living and dying in captivity. So there's a really, again, moving account of people dying in the convoys to actually get him to Yanjing in the first place, accounts of him trying to get messages out to his son by sewing messages into clothing. And you talk about what captivity was like for him during the last years of his life and what happens immediately after. 
So as we come to the end of this story um, and the end of our conversation about it, we come back to the question that began the book in the first place and the question that you revisit in the last part of the book. And this is, what brought about the fall of Huizong and the fall of this part of the song. Now, other texts commonly assume, as we talked about at the very beginning, that Huizong brought this disaster on himself through a love of luxury, right? And you talk at the very um, end of the book about the ways that traditional historians of China or certain aspects of Chinese historiography might color the view in this way and, and cause readers to understand what's happening in these terms. But that's not the explanation that we get here. It's a very different kind of explanation. So can you kind of bring us to a close by talking about that? What is, how do you see um, this question and what do we need to keep in mind about the way we understand historiography um, in order to understand um, how and why we should revise this view. Mm -hmm. Here, I think it's very important to ask the question of, uh, did Huizong have anything to do with the rise of the Jurchen? I think almost everyone would admit, no, he had nothing to do with that. The Jurchen are sort of on the far side of Liao. There isn't um, any way in which Sung was aiding their original rise. So I would say that the outcome was entirely contingent. If the Liao had been able to defeat the Jurchen um, to reassert its own supremacy over lordship, there wouldn't have been any of this story of the fall of the Northern Song. It took the uh, Jurchen to have success in fighting Liao and able to use all of Liao's uh, resources to make that happen. I think Liao and Northern Song had a very stable relationship based on treaties. It was one in which Song was more or less paying tribute, but it was a stable relationship, and many people at the court uh, saw its strong points. It was a very difficult decision. Uh, the Huizong consulted very broadly in the decision to ally with the Jin. And none of this would have happened if there hadn't been that step of that align with Jin and then um, somehow not quite seeing that Jin is going to be in a much more powerful position after it's fully defeated Liao and would not be a great neighbor to have to your north. Um, I don't, I, I do uh, suggest that Weizong's um, optimism in the middle of the second decade, uh, his big projects, may possibly have um, contributed to the decision to uh, follow the advice of some of the younger men in this court, Wang Fu, Wang Anjur, um, that this was the great opportunity for Song to retake these 16 prefectures that had been lost uh, in the mid-10th century, before Song was even established, the Liao was founded earlier and acquired these areas that were primarily Chinese settled. In today's um, Beijing and Datum. That, that I would admit that, that some of his great optimism undoubtedly contributed to this, but there was so much contingency uh, going on. I think that it's very wrong to try to assume that uh, this was some kind of a uh, faded event. 
even if we look at some of the, the um, policy decisions all the way through, there were often cases where things could have gone a very different way. But certainly the basic decision to ally with Jin could have gone the other way. Most of the time, uh, Wei Zong took the advice of uh, Tsai Ching and some of the other senior people at the court, and this time he didn't. He went with uh, the optimists, the dreamers, who thought this was your chance to really go down in history as the one who uh, got back all of the Chinese territory. Thank you so much for making the time to talk with us today. It's an amazing book. It's an incredibly rich book. And we really only barely scratched the surface of what's a very deep, very well-grounded, and very, very exhaustively researched, but also very pleasant to read narrative about Hui Zong. And as I think has um, hopefully come out for listeners, it's about a whole lot more than Hui Zong as well. Is there anything in particular that we didn't have a chance to talk about, but that you'd like to mention for listeners, and perhaps um, especially since the book just came out, for listeners who haven't yet had a chance to read the book? Actually, probably nothing. You covered so much. I was amazed how much you could get in. Yeah. <laughs> well, I, I'll then add um, at the end, just um, not only, we've already mentioned a little bit the images in the book. So not only are there um, some really wonderful color images, but also the book is full of very sensitive and deftly done um, translations of primary sources and parts of primary sources that are woven into the narrative. So I'll also um, just highlight that very briefly at the end before we sign off, um, because it's a really rich uh, collection of also very different kinds of translations of windows into this rich archive that you brought to bear for the project. So now that the project is done, and congratulations, I hope it's clear that I think this is an amazing and very important book. What's next for you? Are there any projects uh, that are currently inspiring you? Well, I've decided to finally set Wade's on behind. I took all of those books away and all those files on my computer um, and decided my next book, I want to be a fairly short book, addressing the question of... Um, why has China been the largest country through so much of its history? Which I think is answered by the fact that it was able to reunify so many times. And so I want to look at that. I'm thinking I'll particularly take the period from 350 to 1250, where you start from when it was the least uh, unified, um, to having gone through two long dynasties, Tang and Sung. So this is something new. I've just been reading um, uh, for it, I want to try to write in such a way that people who are non-China specialists, people say world historians, would find it interesting. So it'll be a very different book. Well, best of luck. That sounds great. Um, and I'll look forward to talking with you about that book as well when it comes out. Um, thank you so much, Pat. It's really been a pleasure and congratulations. Oh, my pleasure. Thank you. You've been listening to new books in East Asian studies. Thanks very much for joining us and we'll see you next time.